Welcome to Live Talk, a weekly radio talk style show exclusively produced by Pituitary World News. Well, hello everyone. Uh, thanks for joining us today. I'm delighted to have with us uh, Dr. Uh, Alan Krasner, who is the Chief Medical Officer of Chronetics. Uh, we're going to ask uh, Dr. Krasner to tell us all the work, that, uh, fantastic work that they're doing at Chronetics on the development of med new medications for uh, Megaly and Cushing's, among others. Uh, and with me is, uh, as always, my co-host and partner, Dr. Louis Plevitz at Pituitary World News. So, so welcome, welcome, you guys. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much for taking the time, Dr. Krasner. I should tell you a little bit about Dr. Krasner. Is, uh, he's, uh, he joined Chronetics as the chief medical officer in June of 2018. And uh, prior to Chronetics, he was a senior medical director at Shire Pharmaceuticals, where he served as global developmental lead for NatPara, the first recombinant human intact uh, parathyroid hormone treatment for hypoparathyroidism. Right, I got that one out. <laughs> Uh, so prior to Shire, Dr. Krasner worked at uh, Biodell and Pfizer, conducting clinical research at various stages of development in diabetes and obesity. So thank you. Thank you, Dr. Krasner. I should say that both Dr. Krasner and Dr. Blevins uh, did their um, uh, intern uh, fellowships, right, at, uh, at Johns Hopkins University. So the, these two guys go back a long time. So we're looking forward to a great conversation. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate the invitation. Yeah, we do. We do appreciate you joining us. You know, it's interesting. We first met about thirty years the, this year. You know, thirty years ago. And wow, Baltimore, that sounds Maryland, right. So, yeah. I was I was hoping you wouldn't uh, uh, state the exact number, but since you did, <laughs> you're absolutely right, Lewis. <laughs> we go way back. Uh, it's it's incredible how much uh, development and understanding of diseases conditions that have ha that's happened over that time frame. Uh, everything has changed a, a tremendous amount, and in particular with acromegaly, I, I remember back to my fellowship training where if we had a patient with acromegaly, the only drug we really had at that time was uh, bromocryptine, which could normalize IGF one in about fifteen percent of patients, and uh, everybody at surgery where they had a gross total resection or not got radiotherapy afterwards. And, you know, most people had uncontrolled disease. And we, at about that time, we started seeing papers coming out of Europe that indicated the uh, goals of therapy with regards to IGF-1 and growth hormone levels. That's evolved over time. So now we have very stringent criteria. And furthermore, it's a, probably at the end of your training is when the first somatostatin analog, uh, the short acting, Sanostatin came out to treat acromegaly. Since then, there's been a whole plethora of drugs uh, such that now we can very significantly alter the treated natural history of the disease and get most people under control where we couldn't before. And now you're working in that field from the pharmaceutical side. So we really look forward to learning about uh, your uh, situation and uh, what you're doing uh, to improve the lives of patients with acromegaly. Absolutely. It's wonderful. So why don't we get started? Why don't you tell us a little bit about the work that you do at Chronetics and a little bit about Chronetics and how it's grown and, and where, it, where things stand in terms of all of the work that you're doing? Sure. So Chronetics is a small pharmaceutical company headquartered in San Diego, California. Um, it was founded by a group of scientists who are very talented at uh, discovering uh, new molecules which, are, which have potential to be therapeutic agents. The, the theme at Chronetics is uh, focused in endocrine disease. We are, uh, uh, the, the scientists here are very good at identifying drug candidates which are sort of designed for scra from scratch to um, uh, achieve therapeutic goals in various endocrine diseases by targeting specific and uh, largely known endocrine receptors in the body for a variety of purposes. Uh, our, uh, one of our founders was a very talented medicinal chemist. And so the uh, agents that 
Chronetics discovers and develops are sort of designed from uh, the beginning to be uh, uh, orally bioavailable, which means they can be absorbed by taking, it, uh, taking them by mouth. These are small molecules. They are not peptides or biological agents which require injection. Uh, and they're well and thoroughly tested in the laboratories before they're nominated to start testing in uh, humans, for generally first in healthy volunteers and then in patients with the disease targets for these drug candidates. So that's sort of the theme at Grenetics. So far, we, um, our, our colleagues in Discovery have uh, nominated three different uh, new molecules to be tested in, in humans and then uh, in patients and different patient groups. Uh, our most advanced candidate is called peltucetine, and it is a, a, a once-a-day oral agent uh, that is, as you say, in phase three development for the treatment of patients with acromegaly. Phase three development is sort of the final stage of clinical testing before an application is submitted to the FDA for approval uh, to market that medication. Uh, phase three trials are generally the largest and longest trials, uh, and they involve the most patients, and they're considered sort of confirmatory uh, data to allow the FDA to make uh, decisions on whether the drug candidate is approvable for marketing. And so paltucetine is in the midst of these phase three trials evaluating the safety and efficacy of this agent for the treatment of acromegaly patients. There are currently two ongoing phase three trials, one of which is still enrolling patients. Uh, the other has uh, already completed enrollment a few months ago. They're called the Pathfinder trials, Pathfinder 1 and Pathfinder 2. And Pathfinder 2 is the one that is still enrolling patients. Um, these trials we expect to complete uh, next year, uh, and we hope to have uh, top-line results from these trials by the end of next year. Right. So we're at a very exciting stage for this compound. Uh, if all goes well and the data look good, and we have evidence that it is safe and effective, we would then compile an application it's called a new drug application, an NDA, that we would then file hopefully with the FDA. Uh, and then they would take uh, approximately nine months to review that application. These applications are very, very large and voluminous with tons and tons of data in them. And then if all went well after that, the drug could possibly be approved for marketing purposes. We also have two other uh, uh, compounds, molecules that, that are in clinical testing. They are earlier in development. And so far, those two others have been tested uh, only in healthy volunteers in a phase one study. And we are preparing uh, phase two studies, the first studies in patients, for those, uh, for those drug candidates, uh, hopefully to start next year. Are those in the uh, field of acromegaly as well? Or no, the other two, one of them is for Cushing's disease, or I should say ACTH-dependent Cushing syndrome. The mechanism of action for this one is actually it blocks the ACTH receptor in the adrenal glands. And uh, this, uh, we have shown in healthy volunteers, can, can lower cortisol levels. Uh, and uh, we, we have uh, hopes that this would be applicable for patients with Cushing's ACTH-dependent Cushing syndrome, which means either they have a pituitary tumor secreting too much ACTH and, st and stimulating too much cortisol from the adrenals, or they have a tumor outside of the pituitary secreting too much ACTH or ectopic ACTH syndrome. And we're excited to start soon a, a study in patients uh, with one of these two conditions at um, the National Institute of Health, uh, where a well-known physician there, Dr. Neiman, will help us um, evaluate uh, this compound in patients at the NIH with uh, one of these conditions. Um, it also might have uh, used the same uh, candidate, might have use for patients with another condition called congenital adrenal hyperplasia. These are patients who are born with a, uh, the inability to fully synthesize cortisol, the stress hormone in the adrenal glands, and uh, they require lifelong uh, uh, steroid or glucocorticoid replacement treatment. 
And uh, despite that replacement treatment, a lot of these patients have trouble with too much male hormone or androgen coming out of the adrenal glands. And we're hoping an ACTH uh, blocker would also help those patients uh, lower the amount of androgen coming out of the adrenals and also helpfully lower their glucocorticoid dose requirement to a truly low replacement dose. That's, that, that compound doesn't have a name yet. We call it CRN04894. It's earlier in development, and uh, we, uh, although we have very interesting results in healthy volunteers, um, we need to start uh, and hope to start um, uh, testing these compounds in patients with one of these two conditions next year. That's superb. Certainly, that there's an unmet need there at that molecular target. So this is uh, exciting to hear about uh, that uh, possibility in the future. Tell us about the drug for acromegaly, the mechanism of action, mm -hmm. how, how, if you're able to discuss it, how it sort of came about and how they discovered it. And was it a eureka moment or did they work to discover this and uh, uh, achieve this end result? Uh, whatever you can tell us, we'd like to hear. Oh, absolutely. You know, it, 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 um, what I, one of the things I've learned since I've come to Chronetics uh, is what, that, that the field of medicinal chemistry in particular is not just great science, but it's also an art. We have some very uh, creative and talented chemists here who can visualize molecules in three-dimensional space and how they interact with even much larger receptors found on the surface of cells. And they use a very um, a methodical process of what we call iterative chemistry. They just... Uh, they start with uh, a, a chemical that's been described in the past that maybe would interact with the known receptor target. And they keep tweaking molecules in three-dimensional space iteratively, repeatedly, uh, until they find using uh, uh, laboratory testing that it hits the target of interest. And there are ways to do this very systematically and methodically. What I find here is that it's, they just have very efficient processes for discovering these molecules, and they have very efficient uh, cascades of testing, which then not only show that it hits the therapeutic target of interest, but it also has drug-like characteristics, which means it is safe in a variety of safety screening assays, it's safe in animals, it uh, has the intended pharmacologic effect in vivo in animals, it's a very, very uh, impressive and uh, intense process. This all happens before one human being is tested with the drug. And this process from the point, uh, from the point where we decide, the, the scientists decide, here's a therapeutic target in endocrinology we would like to target for a new medication, to the time we have an actual molecule identified to test in humans. Uh, you know, we're talking about years here. This is not an overnight process, but at the same time, uh, our scientists have um, managed in three out of three cases to bring forward for human testing drug candidates which hit their target. Uh, and we can show that even in the very first clinical studies, even in, before we get to patients and healthy volunteers, you know, we can measure our endocrine uh, blood tests that we love so much, Lewis, and we can measure them in real time. And for example, we can show with short periods of dosing in healthy people that uh, uh, 4894 lowers cortisol levels and blocks the ACTH receptor. Um, so that's a very nice uh, uh, system. And it's something we have an advantage on in this in endocrinology because we have our our blood tests, which really tell us, do drug candidates work? We can, if we want to lower cortisol, we can measure cortisol in a study very quickly. And we can, we can demonstrate that the intended effect of the compound is there very early in the development process, well before we get to patients and get to very, very large trials. We know it's hitting the target. So in the case of paltucetine, paltucetine is intended for acromegaly patients, and it has the same target and mechanism of action as octreotide and lanreotide. And you mentioned octreotide early, uh, earlier. It is now often used, 
not always, but often used as a first-line treatment for newly diagnosed patients with acromegaly who have not been fully cured by either surgery or radiotherapy. And uh, these are patients who generally need uh, medication sort of indefinitely if they have not been fully cured. And the, first, the current first-line treatments are these big monthly injections of either octreotide or lamreotide, which are considered generally similarly effective. Um, but um, although, as you mentioned, uh, particularly uh, with the additional agents that are available now, a lot of patients are well served by the, these drugs that are currently available. The injections in particular are quite burdensome for patients. Um, uh, we have been told by multiple patients and patient groups that uh, not only is the injection itself not necessarily the most comfortable thing in the world, but it's also uh, a burden for patients to have to kind of schedule their lives around their monthly injections. Some patients, of course, can do their own injections at home of lanreotide, but a large number out there do have to report to a healthcare professional approximately once a month for these, for these injections, and that can really sort of impair their ability to live their lives. And so um, we've heard from many that uh, an oral alternative that's just as effective as these injections would be welcome. And that's what peltucetine has to offer. It is a somatostatin agonist, just like octreotide and lanreotide. It hits the same receptor as they do, only it is orally bioavailable. And it would, uh, what we are testing in our trials is a once a day tablet administration of peltucetine for patients with acromegaly. Okay. We're testing it in patients who are currently already on injections and uh, volunteer for the trial to switch to either peltucetine versus placebo in one trial. That's the Pathfinder 1 study. Uh, we're also testing it in patients who are not currently treated with any uh, pharmacotherapy, either because they had their surgery recently and have not yet started, those are naive patients, but also patients who may not have been on their study drug for any number of reasons, or uh, may not have been on their medication for acromegaly for any number of reasons for the previous four months. And then there are some patients who could be eligible who are already on octreotide or lanreotide, but are willing to wash out of it during a screening period for the, for the Pathfinder 2 study. Um, in that study, we're, we're hoping to show that patients who need their IGF-1 lowered from high to normal, uh, with, uh, we're, we're testing the peltucetine's ability to normalize IGF-1 in the naive or functionally naive patient population. And we're, that is also a randomized, double-blinded, placebo-controlled trial, just like the first study. Yeah, I should add that we have uh, on Pituitary World News in the front page a link to the Pathfinder 2 study. So if anybody that's listening is interested in learning more, definitely can do that by going to the website and clicking on that on that link. So and I understand it's been it's working pretty well. So that's great to hear. We don't have uh, data yet from these trials, but we will uh, uh, hopefully next year. And uh, we're we're excited to. Um, to analyze the results at the end of the trial. These are blinded studies, of yeah, course, yeah, of uh, course. placebo-controlled studies. Yeah. So we don't know yet uh, that it works. Uh, uh, as safety and efficacy are the main things we have to show in these trials. Yeah, of course. It's going to be very frustrating, I would say, for a scientist to have to wait this long to see how things are going. But uh, anyway... Right. I should say that we did a, a podcast oh, three years ago, I think, before COVID, maybe a little longer, uh, when uh, Paltusotin wasn't even named. It was CRN008 something, 808, I think it was. 808, correct. correct. <laughs> and uh, the energy that was, we talked to a bunch of different people, as you know, Dr. Krasner, and a lot of the scientists, and the energy that they were communicating in the excitement about the discovery work, it's actually contagious. You know, you walk in there and it's just all this great energy and the work that that, uh, that these these guys are doing is fantastic. So uh, you don't see that, you know, obviously, but it's great to be exposed to it. Uh, well, I, I feel it every day. I'm a very lucky guy. 
Okay. I, yeah. uh, I, this is a really fun and a stimulating and exciting place to work. I can imagine. I can, because the science, the science of it all is fascinating. Um, it, it is. It is. And uh, I'll tell you, the, uh, the, the sophistication of the science is, um, to me, always awe-inspiring. Yeah. Uh, uh, and um, as I mentioned, it's not just science. There's uh, there's this other piece of the story that I learned at Kernetics. It, it really is this kind of artistic vision too of where you need a part of a molecule to fit into another part of a molecule, and and to have the right properties to create the ultimate uh, you know the, the a drug which can be both safe and effective. It's very hard to do that. Um, uh, the metaphor we use around here is it's like um, creating a, taking a water balloon and trying to make it perfectly spherical. So, you know, if you push over here, something's going to yeah. come out over here. And you, you, you're constantly massaging this balloon until you get just the right parts of the balloon compressed so that it's like a perfect sphere. And I'll tell you, it, it um, takes a lot of trial and error. Um, you know, the reason paltucetine was originally called 808 was because it was the 808th novel chemical that Chronetics synthesized uh, with partners. Um, and it was the 808th molecule out of, let's say, 1,000 or so that was screened and tested using a variety of assays. Number 808 is the one that made it through all the preclinical tests, and that's why it was nominated for clinical tests. Yeah. So we're not talking, of, we're talking about uh, our scientists having to sort through libraries of um, thousands of molecules to find one which might be a drug. Yeah. And once they pick that one molecule, now they wait, you know, as you mentioned, at least five years before they get the answer, is it a drug? Uh, so it's a long, long process. Yeah, I so in the end, re very rewarding when, when success is achieved. Oh, I can't imagine. <clears throat> a couple comments. First, Jorge, you passed your memory test, so I have to oh, give you a gold star. I was wondering. I wouldn't have remembered that. <laughs> so I'll remember it now. Everything done. Yeah. <laughs> so, and the, Alan, yeah, you... you you counted yourself the lucky guy, so I have to ask this question. Are you the lucky guy that has to prepare the submission of the FDA? Oh, I'm, I'm one of a large number, a, a large team of incredibly talented colleagues who do that. Yeah. Are you the head uh, of that process or are you, you uh, as a chief medical officer or? I, I you know, uh, so there are many, many components of a new drug application. Part of the new drug application has to do with the medical part of the story and the overall interpretation of the clinical data that we generate, as well as sort of a final risk benefit analysis. That's a major part of the NDA submission. But there are many, many other components to the submission. I, I would not be in charge of things like the chemistry and the manufacturing. Manufacturing itself is a a art and a science which uh, uh, requires a tremendous amount of expertise and labor. Uh, and that's also a major, major component of an NDA application, too, that uh, we have experts who do that part of it. So you have to show tolerance limits that if you say it's this amount, it's really this amount and all of that sort of thing, right? So um, for the manufacturing, yeah. yeah. Oh, manufacturing. Oh, you, uh, perhaps you should consider my colleague uh, uh, for your next podcast. That is a whole uh, complex art and science. Uh, and a lot of people who, who consume or who follow the drug in industry, this is often a part of the story that is behind the scenes. There is so much work involved with just finding the right, not only finding the right chemical in the discovery lab, but taking that chemical and finding the most efficient way to manufacture it, turn it into a physical form that patients can actually take, like in this case, a tablet, uh, and finding the right dimensions of the tab tablet, exactly what the components of the tablet are, how, what's, what's put on the, you know, this is, there are legions of people who know what they're doing, who 
create the final form of the medication that patients actually take. And it's a very complex process that just goes on behind the scenes. And the FDA wants to see all of that, yeah? Oh, yeah, in great detail. Yeah. And the FDA have ha, themselves have their own counterparts for everything we do. They have, for example, at FDA, they have a whole group that's experts in manufacturing and chemistry. They also have clinicians like us, Lewis. They have safety experts. They have statisticians. We have all these same um, disciplines in industry, and we, the, the counterparts at the FDA and the other regulatory agencies around the world evaluate all these things in enormous detail. That's why uh, an average review time is typically something like nine months for a new drug application. Well, well, we definitely take you up on the offer to have your colleague talk about that. That sounds really interesting. Uh, yeah, just learn we, um, you know, how, how it works. Oh, absolutely. We, uh, we I, 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 again, a lot of that, you know, when you pick up a pill bottle and take your tablet, it, that, that tablet was years of work and research uh, to come up with that final form. It's not a trivial process. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. So, um, I don't know, Dr. Blevins, do you have any other questions, but specifically about the Baltusatine and how it works, whatever Dr. Crasser uh, uh, can share with us? Yeah, I'd like to ask a couple more questions about yeah, it, sure. but then also talk sure. about the drug that you're beginning to study as well for Cushing's sure. uh, and, and sort of help patients and people li listening to understand the difference in the process of creating these two drugs side by side. Uh, so I'm not sure if you're able to share because I don't know what the patent information is, but can you tell us how you can get this drug across gastric acid uh, and into the bloodstream where it can, can work? Um, you know, so um, this compound, like other orally bioavailable small molecules, you know, take Tylenol, for example, these, these kinds of compounds are intrinsically permeable through the GI mucosa. Uh, they do not require um, uh, permeation enhancers, for example. They do not require uh, additional molecules to help it get through the GI mucosa. Uh, all of our drug candidates are selected because they don't need help to be absorbed through the GI mucosa. It's similar to other sort of old-fashioned pills and, 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 and tablets, which um, don't require injection. Um, certain, you know, every, every compound has its own uh, profile with respect to absorption through the GI tract. In the case of paltucetine, our, our drug candidate for acromegaly, uh, we've already done a formal, uh, what we call a formal bioavailability study, which actually measures the percentage of the compound that is absorbed through the GI tract, again, inherently. And um, it, uh, it's 70%. It's so 70% of a absorbed, uh, of an administered a compound administered by mouth uh, is absorbed. Now that's in the case of our original oral solution of the compound that we uh, tested originally in this formal uh, study. The tablet form of the compound that's going to be more, uh, that we're testing in phase three, and the one that we would commercialize if approved, uh, may have uh, a lower bioavailability. Uh, however, it's still plenty of the drug gets uh, efficiently absorbed through the GI mm -hmm. tract. That's pretty high absorption. That's that's fantastic. You know, I, I how big is the molecule? Is it? Um, oh boy, good probably question. Under, it's probably probably under twenty amino acids for sure. Probably right. Well, I mean, so the again, octreotide is eight. You know, so uh, right, right. But again, yeah. this is a small molecule. This is not a peptide. Um, yeah, this see. is a novel chemical small molecule with a molecular weight under a thousand. Yeah, uh, triatide is well north of that, and bigger peptides can yeah. be uh, very high. So, um, you know, this is like, again, I will bring up Tylenol or any other typical medicine you would take by mouth. These are these are generally compounds which get through the GI tract on their own. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. So, um, 
if you were to sort of look ahead on an imaginary timeline, you think a few years still for the compound to get to the market? At least, yeah. two, at least two, more than that, probably. So, well, so again, we're hoping to have uh, what, what we need to uh, get approved is we need to finish our phase three studies and analyze those data. And again, I, I hope we can uh, accomplish that at least at the top line result level by the end of next year. Mm -hmm. Then we need some time to take all these data and create this new drug application. Uh, and then the FDA has, um, you know, roughly, they usually take roughly nine months to review that application. So realistically, yes, uh, we hope we could have an approval and start marketing in 2025. Okay, great. So this is, this is, uh, did you want to correct that or you can? Uh, it, let, let me say uh, late 24 versus early 25. A lot of this is uh, to be determined. All right. So this is a drug that binds to the somatostatin receptor and activates it. Yes, correct. And the drug you're developing for Cushing's is going to bind to the ACTH receptor and block it. So maybe correct. you could help our listeners understand how one goes about developing one drug for one situation that activates a receptor to have a clinical effect and another one that blocks a receptor to have the desired clinical effect. That's a that's a good question, Louis. I um, and I might ask for another one of my colleagues to come back on your podcast someday, Steve Betts, who I think you know very well. Yeah. Uh, or he um, he uh, is our chief scientific officer, and you know this is getting into the areas where I was describing before. These guys can sort of visualize and and design molecules to either uh, to to block to appropriate places on the target receptors. Uh, to result in agonism or, or stimulation versus blocking a receptor and also kind of choose where on the receptor we want that to occur. Sometimes you want to kind of um, get into the actual binding pocket of the receptor and just physically activate it or block it with your molecule. Or sometimes you want to kind of come, come into the receptor somewhere else cause a change in the shape of the receptor from a distant binding and, and uh, change the function in that way. That's called allosteric modulation. And um, I'm not the guy who uh, knows how to design the molecules to, do, to tweak the receptors in the desired ways, but I, I know some good people who do know how to do that. Interesting. Well, definitely. We, if uh, if uh, Steve, uh, Doctor Steve Betts wants to come uh, uh, to chat with us, he's great. I mean, I, oh, yeah. I enjoyed I enjoyed the conversations that I've had with him very much. So, and he's a, he's fantastic at explaining it too. So that would be great. We will I sign will. him. We will definitely sign him up. <laughs> I will uh, let him know. Yeah. He is not, he has uh, been uh, he has been uh, requested. His presence has been requested. Yeah. 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 Yeah, welcome. He's welcome to our to our microphones anytime. Thank you. I'm sure he'll be delighted. <laughs> I should mention one other uh, exciting possibility we have in our portfolio that's already being tested um, in humans is uh, a third molecule, a code name 4777. This is a stimulator of the somatostatin agonist subtype five. Mm -hmm. um, this is, uh, uh, been tested in healthy volunteers. Um, the goal here is to actually sort of, uh, make the patient's blood sugar or glucose level go up sort of the opposite of what you're trying to do in diabetes with the medications you're trying to make high blood sugars go down, but an SST5 agonist or stimulator may be helpful in patients who have uh, severe episodes of hypoglycemia or low blood sugar. Um, this, as you know, can be very dangerous. Um, uh, there are a group of children who are born with a condition called congenital hyperinsulinism, where the pancreas um, secretes uh, 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 excess of amounts of insulin. And these children sometimes can have uh, very serious and sometimes life-threatening episodes of low blood sugar. 
so we're uh, interested in whether uh, a somatostatin 5 agonist might be useful to help these, these patients. There are also some adults who have difficulties with intractable hypoglycemia. Uh, for example, patients who've had bariatric surgery or obesity surgery sometimes are left with episodes of disabling hypoglycemia, uh, developing some years after their surgery. There's also patients with a rare endocrine tumor in their pancreas called an insulinoma, uh, where um, you know uh, uh, they are very much uh, at risk for severe hypoglycemia as well. So there, there are a lot of potential patients out there who might benefit from having their blood sugar raised with a new medication. A lot of these patients don't have great treatment options now. Uh, and we showed in a phase one study in healthy volunteers that this compound um, can raise blood sugars uh, uh, even when stimulated with uh, a, a drug which lowers blood sugar called sulfonurias. Even when stimulated with sulfonuria blood sugar lowering drugs, 47.7 can help uh, prevent that sulfonuria-induced lowering of blood sugar. So we think we have uh, learned from the healthy volunteers what we can, uh, but in this case, it may have promise for a treatment of these patients with a different kind of endocrine condition. Well, as you know, that uh, type 5 receptor is also an ACTH-producing pituitary tumors, so you could potentially develop a, a compound there that you could co-administer with the other drug if you needed it. So. Uh, to... That that's a great comment, Lewis. We, we that's one of the things we're trying to achieve here is a synergy. Sometimes more than one of our compounds might be useful for certain patients, as you point out. Um, and uh, we really are focused and dedicated to the community of endocrine patients. Um, all of these are focused in this area. Uh, the founders of this company uh, were uh, always dedicated uh, to basic science and drug discovery research in uh, endocrine conditions, um, but there really wasn't too many companies out there focused in this area in, in endocrinology, and so Cronetics is uh, one of them, uh, one of the very few, and we're proud to be in this area. I think it's, uh, uh, as I mentioned, a wonderful and exciting uh place to be, but also endocrine patients still have ongoing medical needs that we are looking forward to addressing. Well, we're delighted that you're out there, and I'm, I'm just ecstatic that you're doing this important work. Um, you know, I remember back to the times after your fellowship, you took a job at Hopkins, and I think you were doing endocrinology, and you were in the, uh, uh, in the clinic, I, as I recall, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were the guy that got sent the unusual patients where no one could figure out what they had. And you were doing that sort of discovery work, largely because I always thought of you having an encyclopedic knowledge of medicine, and I thought you were good for that job. Uh, and I think that type of work translates very well to what you're doing now. Thank you, Louis. I, I, uh, I always remember finally sitting in the fellows study side by side, uh, after hours, uh, talking about our interesting cases. And I, I knew from the beginning, uh, you were gonna be a very special position uh, for these patients and uh, time has proven me correct. Yeah, and I'm glad we're able to cross paths again now and then hopefully again, multiple times in the future uh, as your company does the work that my patients need uh, help with. So be a good partnership moving forward. Absolutely. And I uh, appreciate the opportunity to tell you about Cronetics. As you can tell, I could talk all day about them, uh, about what we're doing, because there's so much uh, going on. And it, uh, it is a very stimulating environment. I'm sure my colleagues uh, will be glad to uh, also share different aspects of what they do here, because it is very much a multidisciplinary effort. So when I think about the company's name, I think about the the kinetics of time. Can you tell me more about the, or tell us more about the origination of the name of the company? Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the crin part is, um, 
comes from endocrine, endocrinology. Uh, got it. And you're right, the initial um, sort of focus of the company when they started uh, uh, was looking at the kinetics of endocrine uh, receptors and ligands. And um, uh, since then, it's become um, a sort of drug discovery and uh, development company. By the way, we, we also, uh, we hope uh, our, our compounds will pass all their tests during drug development and get approved. We, we intend uh, to commercialize our own products as well. Um, so uh, Scott Struthers, our CEO, is very, very talented. One of the founders, uh, very talented guy, has a, has a vision for end-to-end uh, work serving the endocrine patients. I think that's important, and I, I really appreciate small uh, biopharmaceutical companies who do that work, uh, rather than selling products to the to the big fish that sort of eat them up and dispose of them, or uh, somehow work with them but have bigger fish to fry, so don't really pay attention to uh, the education of physicians and patients, and really getting the drugs to the people who need them. That is our that is our vision. That is our goal, and so far, I, I think we're off to a good start as a company. <clears throat> Interesting. So, so I wanted to. I, I don't. I don't know if Dr. Blevins. I don't want to interrupt this conversation because it's a great conversation about the the science. But I wanted to talk a little bit about the clinical trials and um, the. What's interesting to me is this concept, this idea of patient naive. Uh, trials uh, where uh, a physician or the patient itself has to make the decision to say to a patient, there's there's some proven drugs, but this one isn't, but maybe you should try it. And, uh, you know, to for our patients to understand, or for our listeners to understand how how important it is to participate and uh, what what sort of what goes through your head when you, when, when, as a, you know, as a physician, Dr. Plevins, when you see a patient and you know there's a trial going on and you don't know if this drug is going to work, or I mean, the, the, you know, you know what drug is going to work, but you know, you're making the decision of, of what this patient should take. How do you, what goes through your mind to ask somebody to say, well, maybe you should consider a, uh, you know, a, a trial and see how that goes. Where, how, where does that fit in the, in your um, in your practice, well, it's a, it's a great question. It's somewhat difficult to answer, uh, yeah. but I'll share my personal perspective. So, um, first off, I'm a, an avid supporter of uh, clinical research. Uh, my training at Hopkins and my first two faculty positions, both at uh, Emory and Vanderbilt, I did a lot of clinical trial type work enrolling patients in studies. When I came to UCSF 16 years ago, we didn't have the resources nor a functional clinical trial center. So I was not able to participate in clinical trials, even though I strongly encouraged the leadership to give me space and people and opportunity. They, they didn't feel like, even at a research powerhouse like UCSF, that it was going to be worthwhile because I was brought to the campus to see large volumes of patients with pituitary disorders and build a clinical practice. And I've always felt like the uh, clinical trials are an important part of a, a practice like one at UCSF. Over the years, however, I found it to be a little bit of a blessing in disguise because I would have probably participated in 20 trials or so over the past 16 years. I would have always been traveling for those trials and wouldn't have been available for my patients. So at an important time in my life where I needed to sort of further develop my patient care skills, which I thought were strong coming into this job, I had the opportunity to strengthen them and to focus on some scholarship as well. So I don't have any regrets about that, but I still believe it's important to, to try to get people to enroll in trials when and where possible. Um, I, I wish I could do them at my center, but the other unique thing that I've learned is that our surgeons are so good that we wouldn't have really had the patient throughput. Uh, to, to get into some of those trials. For example, I was uh, the, uh, the uh, national lead for one trial that I was able to get a rheumatology research assistant to help me out in endocrinology. 
and a pituitary uh, drug. And uh, I was able to start this trial. We didn't enroll any patients because my surgeon was curing everyone with that disease. In the end, I told the company, look, let somebody else take the lead on this. Clearly, I can't get anybody enrolled because we're curing everybody. And, and in fact, the two patients that we potentially could have enrolled said they weren't interested. So um, I think I probably would have had some difficulty recruitment, recruiting because our surgeons have such a high success rate in, that, in those arenas of the functional pituitary tumors. Yet we still see a lot of people who come from other institutions or some people at our institution have invasive disease who have um, uh, the requirement for medical therapy, if you will, and we use existing drugs. Uh, I encourage people, let them know there are molecules coming down the pipeline and if they're interested in enrolling, I certainly would support that. Um, what I haven't been doing much of lately is that there are other centers that want to enroll our patients. And um, I've, I've had some difficulty where those patients never came back at the end of the study. Um, and I don't know what happened to them. And, and I didn't think that that was appropriate that I should have followed that patient throughout the study. But they actually wanted a hands-off approach by the non-research physician, which was a bit of a surprise to me. Uh, so that sort of left a little bit of a sour taste in my mouth. But that said, though, I still support people finding studies and uh, working to to uh, contribute new knowledge for the benefit of all patients, both current and future patients. I'm assuming that patient-naive um, trials are more difficult just because of, of the recruiting, no? to, to, to find patients. Uh, Dr. Krasner has... Or... No, I think they're actually probably easier, uh, oh. but they're easier to find them because there's more. I mean, when you think about something like acromegaly, the prevalence of people with disease is greater than the, than the uh, number of people having a new disease diagnosed and the incidence of the disease, so to speak. Uh, and if you look at the two together, you should have this great big body of people to, to draw from for a clinical study. In my opinion, the naive patients are the most important because nothing else has touched them. Because if someone's had surgery and radiotherapy and you want to put them on a smithsetin analog, you don't know whether or not the radiotherapy is having the effect uh, and, or is it the drug. And, and that's been shown even, let's say, with the Pegvisimod studies. You know, the placebo effect was tremendous, uh, not tremendous, but significantly greater than what you would expect for a placebo because people had, had radiotherapy. Uh, before enrolling into the study. So to me, the best subjects are those who haven't had any interventions, but the reason it's hard to get them to enroll is because they want to have surgery because they see surgery as definitive treatment. And they, you know, they may have had acromegaly for nearly 30 years like yourself, but the moment they're diagnosed, it's like, I want my surgery now. I'm not going to take a year to enter a study. Uh, and I would like to think that those, though, would be the best naive de novo patients where you can really truly see the beneficial effects of the, of the drug. I think you also need the people who go to surgery and are uh, no radiotherapy, no prior medications to sort of see how, they, how well these drugs work too. Otherwise your data just has to be cleaned up and you have to wonder uh, what, what other things have impacted this uh, situation. Um, the reason I like the the patients before they've ever even had surgery is that we see this happen all the time is that someone goes to surgery, they have a residual tumor with acromegaly or Cushing's and within six months that tumor infarcts because it's blood supply sometime within the six months, not sure when it's blood supply was disrupted at the time of surgery. So these people suddenly no longer have acromegaly or Cushing's and it's like, so if they were enrolled in the study, you would include them as a subject that actually responded to treatment when, in essence, their tumor infarcted. Some of these tumors will after surgery. The residuals have a tenuous blood supply. They just shrivel up and go away. Uh, so that's why I like the notion of the people prior to surgery ever as defining what are the true response rates to some of these medications. Unfortunately, those are the group of people who, who want to have surgery 10 years ago. So they're going to go straight to the operating room. So we do the best we can enrolling people who failed surgery uh, but I, I would like to get those uh, who failed before they go on other treatments into a drug study. 
Ellen, what are your thoughts about some of those confounding variables and uh, the, the pure laboratory experiments, you know, where you get the best information you can get from a study? Yeah, no, uh, absolutely, Lewis. They're very important points. And, and one of our goals when we design a clinical trial is to make sure we can measure the actual effect of the drug and not measure uh, other confounding variables uh, that can affect uh, for example, the patient's disease control. And so this is why in many cases we, for our pivotal late stage trials, phase three trials, we do need to do placebo controlled trials to really assess both for safety and for efficacy what's due to the drug and what's not. Um, uh, you know, in our Pathfinder 2 trial, um, we actually, there are th kind of three patient groups that are sort of eligible for this trial. One are those that are truly naive, and we hope to get a number of those patients um, uh, interested in participating in this trial, medically naive. They've, they've had their surgery and they have yet to start any medication but they do need medication. We, we need verification of that before they come into the trial. But uh, the incidence, as you mentioned, is pretty low for new patients. So in addition, we would accept patients who may have been on a medication in the past, uh, but for whatever reason, such as lack of access to their medication, they haven't been on their medication uh, for the last four months. So they're sort of, they're not truly naive in the true sense, but they, they, they are functionally naive. They, they have a high IGF-1 in the case of the acromegaly patients and, and um, they need treatment and they just haven't been on it. So they would be eligible to come in uh, to the Pathfinder 2 trial. In addition to that, some patients um, who are already on octreotide or lanreotide, uh, uh, but would like to have the opportunity to evaluate an oral agent or participate in this trial, um, uh, have, have the opportunity. We give them something like three months to wash out of their injection. If their IGF-1 rises to a certain point, uh, they're eligible to enroll as well. Uh, so in a sense, everybody, by the time they get to the point where they're being assigned to study drug versus placebo uh, in a random fashion, their IGF-1, they're all high. So it's almost like they're all functionally naive in this trial. It's a very interesting process. And in the end, you need really good statisticians to be able to account for a lot of these potentially confounding variables and, and sort of clean up the data to make sure that it's true, true, and believable, right? I should mention, I also work with some very talented and smart statisticians who focus on, on this for us quite a bit. And uh, that's part of every protocol we write is a statistical plan. Um, the, it yeah. turns out the, the study I'm, de I'm describing, our Pathfinder 2 study, is actually modeled after the same study, the, the same sort of study, the same mix of patients or similar mix of patients that was used to get the get uh, lanreotide approved for the treatment of acromegaly. So it's a very similar study design in that sense. The other comment that you mentioned I want to bring to the attention of our listeners is that you do the placebo studies to determine what's due to the drug and what's not. Right. And the, the what's nots are always very interesting, you know, because we're all human beings and we all get all sorts of things going wrong with us. And it's, it's, it's remarkable how in the old PDR that you used to come, come in the mail once a year, you could look at the side effects of a drug and how almost all drugs cause flu-like symptoms. And that's not because the drugs cause flu-like symptoms. It's because people get the flu while they're in the trial. It gets reported as an adverse event or a side effect of the drug. Uh, and then the diseases have symptoms and signs as well. And you know, if you fill out a questionnaire that says, do you have joint aches and complaints. Most people with acromegaly are going to check yes. If you if you uh, look at the, some of those studies, you think, well, this drug causes joint problems. It's really the disease that's underlying. And that's uh, that's something that we as physicians have to think, think about when we talk to patients about proven demonstrable side effects of medications based on the studies that you folks are doing at your institution. Absolutely. Um, these are very involved uh, 
uh, every every major clinical trial like this is a, is a very involved production, and I, I work with some talented colleagues who are specialists in the operational aspects of running clinical trials, clinical operations. We work with uh, talented physicians uh, who oversee the safety of the patients in the trials. And we have uh, here at Grenetics, uh, Dr. Alessandro Casagrande, um, uh, who has uh, had a long experience treating uh, neuroendocrine patients. Um, and she is uh, uh, doing a super job of helping to oversee these trials and make sure the patients are safe and help to answer questions coming from our research sites around the world uh, conducting these trials. And it's, um, it's a real pleasure to work with people like this and to work with the many investigators around the world who are all working hard to help evaluate paltucetine with their patients. My experience is that that's a very hard part of it because you have physicians at several different centers enrolling patients. And, and in the titrate to clinical effect studies, for example, you may have a doctor at one institution enrolling a patient who has a totally different perspective history of experience with endocrinology and a disease state, who's going to adjust a drug very differently than someone at another institution than at the next institution. So even though you try to control all these variables, your intent to treat and to see how many people we get to normal if we titrate the dose is going to depend on the expertise of the treating physicians, uh, unless the company steps in and recommends therapeutic changes based on results. So how, does your, how do you handle that uh, sense, source of potential treatment bias uh, in, in a study like these? It's, it's a great point, Lewis, and it's a very, very important aspect of um, many kinds of trials, particularly trials I used to work on that involve titrating insulin doses to achieve target glucose levels. Insulin is uh, uh, an infinitely titratable drug, and uh, getting uh, large numbers of investigators around the world to sort of titrate in the same way is a very big challenge. Um, in acromegaly, fortunately, especially for paltucetine, it's a little bit more straightforward. We, we uh, uh, are all aiming for a normal IGF-1 and good symptom control in, our, in patients with acromegaly. And um, uh, we have really a single dose of paltucetine, which we think would be effective in achieving that. So we simply start with the dose, 40 milligrams. Um, and uh, we, of course, check IGF-1 and symptoms frequently. If they're not well controlled on that, uh, on, on, on the starting dose, we have one more dose to try, 60 milligrams. Uh, but we're actually cautiously optimistic that either 40 or 60, probably mainly 40, will be adequate for most patients. So this is much less of a titration challenge than something like insulin, for example, or other drugs that we're, we're familiar with. I should mention that we did a podcast with Dr. Casagrande, and we will put a link to the, that podcast in the article for this uh, uh, on-demand session. When people uh, check it, they can listen to that because there's a great information that she shared with us on clinical trials and her experience and how things were we're working with the trial, so that's great. Alessandra is just uh, a wonderful, terrific uh, clinical trialist and research physician. I have the I have the privilege of working with a number of very talented physicians here now. Um, uh, each of our each of our drug candidates has a subject matter expert attached uh, to the uh, to the drug. Alessandra is our acromegaly expert. We have a wonderful team and a deep bunch of endocrinologists here um, that really make my job uh, all the all the more easier and pleasant. <laughs> That's great. That's good. Yeah, it's always great to have a good team. <laughs> um, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Alan, thank you so much for um, joining us today and sharing with us this uh, information about the pathway from drug discovery to uh, FDA submission. I, I think most people aren't aware of all the steps and problems that are involved in trying to get a drug approved. And uh, we appreciate you and your colleagues for the, uh, accepting those challenges and taking them head on and uh, working to make the lives for, of our patients much better. 
Thank you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking to both of you and uh, thank you for the invitation to address your audience. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. So uh, once again, this is a live talk to Terry World News. Uh, it's uh, nice to have you folks listening. Please let us know what you think of our shows. Send us your ideas about uh, potential topics for either podcasts or radio shows or articles that we can do. And uh, tell a friend about our work uh, and get people turned on about pituitary disease. Uh, thanks and have a great evening. Yeah, and happy holidays, everyone. Thank you for joining us. You have been listening to Live Talk, an exclusive production from Pituitary World News. Pituitary World News is a nonprofit organization supported by a variety of organizations, foundations, and from people like you. We encourage you to participate by joining us to spread the word about pituitary disease. And if you'd like to donate, please go to pituitaryworldnews.org and click on the Donate button. Thank you, and thank you for listening. <laughs>